Lord Jesus, we thank you for the work that you've done in people's lives. And we thank you that we get a chance to hear about the work that you've done in people's lives. All glory and praise and honor go to you, Lord Jesus, for the wonderful things that you accomplish, bringing people to wholeness, saving them from the depths, giving them purpose and joy. It's such a privilege to hear about your work, Lord. Open our hearts. If there's anything that you want to speak to us through the lives of others, please do that. Lord, give us ears to hear what it is the Spirit is saying to us. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, who makes it all possible. Amen. Okay, so Shara, wherever you are, come on up. It's a little bit low, but it should be fine. Okay. Can everyone hear me okay? Wonderful. Cool. So my name is Shara. Um, I am your resident Brit. And up until recently, I was working in a cafe called Husk at the London City Mission in East London. Uh, my background's in um, writing and also I'm a painter. But I'm going to tell you my story in three sections, which is basically just touching on the most significant parts of my life that I feel God protected me. And hopefully you'll be, you'll be able to see the themes of why that was so important to me. So let's start with infancy. We've got some pictures that should pop up in a second. There we go. That's baby me. Um, I am a result of two parents who met in a psychiatric home in North London, and they fell quite literally madly in love. Um, And I had some sort of chance of turning out normal. Um, because of my grandmother. They were pregnant and homeless with me and they lived in squats and they, one night they apparently slept in a phone box. Um, it wasn't a great start even before I was born um, until my mum realised that the only choice she had was to re- return home to my grandmother um, after my granddad died. Uh, shortly after, I was taken into care at the age of three months, so I was a foster kid. I returned back at 10 months. I was taken away again and returned just before the age of two. So those two years of most people's life, as you know, are completely crucial and important for every part of a child's development. And I didn't get that. But one thing I did notice from a very young age is that my world around me just never felt safe. And I didn't really know why. The bonding process between me and my mother was broken which meant that my emotional development um, was hindered. I was, however, inseparable from my grandmother, and she was the safe space and anchor and the place that I called home. She looked after me whilst my mother spent my early years battling heavy medication, um, a stigma of the diagnosis of schizophrenia, And she tried to be a mother through a haze of medication to a child that was desperate for her attention. Um, If we could go to the next slide. There we go. That's That's me and my family. Um, That was actually one of the happiest moments of my life. So even though my childhood was very traumatic, uh, my stepdad came along. So he's on the left. And my mum at that point was well enough to remarry. And um, he came along and I had a very close relationship with him. 
I'm speeding through these time zones now, and it will all make sense, and I feel like I'm not doing the story much justice, but um, you'll see what I'm trying to get at. So the next part I'm going to talk about is being a teenager. Now, I was a really sensitive child and possibly an even more sensitive teenager. And being an only child meant that I had absolutely no proper defense mechanism. So I didn't know how to uh, defend for myself in a fight. I didn't know how to um, stick up for myself. Um, And when I was in school, being the well-spoken, middle-class, somewhat ethnic minority in the area that I grew up in, Southall, um, meant that I was just a target for assault. So I was beat up in corridors, outside school, and although I had friends, the teachers were not good at all at protecting people, and they found the students impossible to handle themselves. So I was admitted to hospital at the age of 15 for three months um, and put in a psychiatric unit. Now, let me be clear when I say I absolutely loved hospital. Um, I felt like I found my tribe, I found people just like me, I made friends, I had fun, I played all the pranks, and um, it was actually a really good place for me to be. Um, So that was a very positive experience as a teenager, and when I was finally well enough to leave, I went to a private school. Um, I had protection once again, so I was with the, uh, the older kids, they kind of took me under their wing, and then with that came the parties. I found myself in a place where I could live in my element. So um, not only was I at every party, but I was the drunkest person there. And although that had its funny moments, um, over a period of four years, I just developed a really bad alcohol problem and ended up in very vulnerable situations with multiple blackouts and found myself in the hands of men who had absolutely no good intention for me whatsoever. I didn't see the connection between my vulnerable infancy and the directionless adolescence that I went through. Part of my hope and prayer is that I won't have to see other people suffer that because of my story. At the age of 19, I recognised that my drinking was actually really dangerous. I got sober But the biggest problem I faced was that I realised even at that point that I was anchorless. So I went along to the AA meetings and I had, you know, the support and I knew all the slogans and I had a sponsor. um, But there wasn't direction or purpose for me. Uh, And and at that particular point, it's really funny how the Holy Spirit moves, because at that point, um, my... Skeptic, my skeptic of a stepdad began going to church and his favorite line was Shara this, the Bible is full of very nice stories but they're not true and we used to take the mick out of my mum for going to church and for getting offended at Christian jokes at that exact same time I had a friend who I'd met at the age of 16 who was a girl called Jenny who is funnily enough now a vicar um, she was a drinking friend and she brought me along to church So I would stand really awkwardly at the back, humming all the tunes, and I just remember feeling absolutely desperate for it all to be true. There were moments where I even tried to fathom up some sort of faith myself, just just in the hope that maybe this Jesus person was real. Maybe there was more than all the parting. Maybe there was all all the, all the, the quick highs that I experienced throughout my late teens. 
And at the age of 19, I had a very dramatic conversion experience. I experienced the Holy Spirit for myself for the first time. Um, And I was very zealous throughout my 20s. And those years were actually fantastic. Things were going really well for me at that point. Until I ended up in a very unhealthy spiritual relationship. And um, I began to doubt my experiences of God. I began to doubt whether those experiences were genuine or not. Um, and there were periods where I longed for God again, even more than the partner that I was with. And I think I recognized that there was something missing at that time. So at the age of 26, I think, and I think this is possibly the most crucial part of why I ended up at scum and how the Lord moved in my life, um, to end up here. Um, because it looks like the story gets better and you, it makes you wonder why the victory didn't happen sooner, I guess. But at the age of 26, I went through a lot of personal loss. So um, there was the breakup with the ex. I had a knee operation and then there was the death of my sweet grandmother. Now, I ended up having the operation around the time of um, the funeral and ended up developing symptoms of post-traumatic stress I was put on a cocktail of drugs. I lost an unhealthy amount of weight. Um, And then my parents separated. And I was absolutely devastated. By the time I reached rehab, I was experiencing multiple panic attacks, hallucinations, anxieties related to harm, hearing voices, and revisited some quite serious childhood trauma that I hadn't really addressed. So where's the victory? Where did, where did God protect you there? I think that was my question when I faced, you know, this, this point of maturing in my faith. Where did, it was really easy to see the Lord's hand over my life when I was a, a child. I prided myself on that. My grandmother was a very prayerful woman. Um, she prayed for 11 years all throughout my teenage years and childhood for me to come back to the Lord. Um, it was easy to see how God protected me in care and brought me back to my, my, my mother, who in the 1980s, for a mother with the diagnosis of schizophrenia, to actually get her child back was almost unheard of. I could see the hand of the Lord in my adolescence. He brought me to an amazing hospital where I had the care that I needed and the protection and the good friends and family around me. I could see his hand when my parents had been brought back to church through what had happened. But then we reach adulthood. And I'm like, Lord, what, what, what are you up to? And there was so much injustice for me. Where was your protection? Why would you let these things happen to me again? Because I didn't think that I would face any sort of orphanhood, any sort of experience like that when I'd fought that as a child. It felt so unfair to me. But all throughout the traumatic period and all the time when I was in rehab, that was actually when I heard the Lord's voice most clearly. Actually, frighteningly so. I felt him as, almost as if he was face to face with me. I, I, he spoke to me in dreams. He spoke in depth into my situations that concerned me. He spoke into my embarrassing phobias that I didn't share with anybody. But I was angry. And Jesus had to deal with angry Shara. 
And I mirrored and reacted as a dysfunctional person with a broken heart and someone who felt rejected. And I began to play games with him. And I would dare him to prove his love to me. I went in and out of trusting him. And sometimes he played the game too. I was, give me a sign, make this happen. And the only way I can describe it, it was like I was the jester and he was the king. And I started this war and no one was ever going to win. But I never felt his absence, even when I was playing games with him. This time was interesting because I was dealing with God as an adult and I was dealing with God as someone who had not fully matured. And he lovingly dealt with me as the broken child in an adult body that hadn't dealt with their demons properly yet. In fact, I think he knew exactly what he was doing the whole time. He hadn't abandoned me. He hadn't been unfaithful. And he hadn't failed to protect me. I felt him in my sleep. I felt him guiding me through, throughout my day. Um, but most of all, I felt him loving me when I just didn't want to behave myself. The best thing for me was that I also realized during that process that I didn't have to be a super Christian and deny the mess that I was in for him to love me. He was teaching me that part of my protection as an adult was obedience, and that was really hard to swallow. The other part of my prayer that I prayed throughout the five years, and this was something that I wasn't even sure God was going to answer, was when I was in rehab and my parents were going through their separation, I wondered how on earth I would get a family again. I prided myself on the fact that I had helped keep my family unit together. I'd kept my mum and my dad together. I'd kept my grandmother safe. That was what I prided myself on. And now the foundations of all those things were completely shattered. And I prayed. I prayed for a family. And I recognized that my parents wouldn't get back together. And, but I hadn't recognized that actually the dysfunction of those relationships that I had with each of them would never look like what they looked like before. Um, my dad moved on with another woman. And my mum was in and out of psychiatric hospital throughout that time. But he showed himself faithful in the people that he brought to me. And... Um, the time when I lived in Manchester, might have some slides here. That's my uncle Steve-O. God put him in my life really quickly after rehab. He's a guy that I met in a very middle-class church in England, and he was the sweet guy, always on the door. He's got tats all up his arms. He's an ex-lorry driver and an ex-Hells Angel. Had a very traumatic time towards the end of his life and became a Christian. He looked after me like an uncle would, and he was amazing. And I truly believe that God brought him to me um, to also show healing in his life as well. Uh, later on in Manchester, I also met Nat and Genevieve. That actually was taken in London. Um, I really believe that it was part of God's plan that he brought them into my life as well at that time. I prayed for not just a family, but for um, a church environment that I could flourish in and that I felt I had permission to be myself with all my broken pieces and all my quirks and that I wouldn't have to hide anymore. Um, I unexpectedly moved back to London and all the foundations of what I'd built in Manchester then didn't go to plan and God was still faithful and he brought me um, 
my friends Dave and Rody. I've lived with them for the last year. I was meant to live with them just for a month. Um, and also Dave, um, his mother, should be on the next slide, who is nothing short of one of the godliest women I've ever met in my life and has taken me as her, basically her surrogate daughter. For me, that is just the hand of God over my life and the way in which he has protected me and the way in which he knew to protect me, not just as a child, but as an adult. Um, I'm going to finish off quickly with this poem that I wrote, which is basically just a reflection of how Jesus dealt with me (laughs) and how patient he was all um, all throughout those five years of recovering. And it's called The Jester and the King. In the age of rebellion, the jester licked her adolescent lips and ate with her mouth open. As the king watched and waited, with daring smiles, she looked up and said, Catch me, kiss me, Lord, I'll run faster. The table was unavoidable, and the banquet rich. So she accepted invitation with cautious eyes, each glance in his direction, embroiled with doubt. The king smiled back. Sit here as I reach your hand in candlelight and let me catch your eyes until awkward flesh breaks us. Eat my body whilst your shaking elbows rest rudely on our inheritance. For whilst you flirt in the darkness, I give you me. Your ill manners cannot stir my anger or stiff neck avert my gaze. Nor will your sour jokes and stale heart chill my bones. As holy warmth rushed through her throat, she responds, May I, may I give you my silent voice, if you give me your real one. May I give you my hidden face, in return for yours. And may I ask that you would paint my dirty skin with your pure intentions. And then I promise I will eat your body on this table where my empty chest will drink you in. We will crucify the jester who tests you for your love. And as the old self suffocates, we will lie amidst your breadcrumbs, and you will be enough. Thank you. All right, every once in a while, they let the old dudes come up here and tell their story. So um, I'm one of the old dudes. I just turned 69 in September. So uh, it's funny, you got 15 minutes to tell 69 years. (laughs) So I'm like, you guys are going to get like the super, super, super hyper condensed quark version of my life here. I've been saved for 64 years. I mean, I have not known anything but Christianity. I grew up in a Baptist church. Um, I still remember the day the, guy, the lady gives the altar call. I'm in children's church. I had my little Sunday school suit on. That's, been when, that's when kids wore suits, a little brown vest, jacket. I had my Sunday school pins. Go down. I remember the lady led me to the Lord. And I remember after that, my life was different. 
I just remember uh, going through all the stuff normal kids go through, but inside of me I knew there was something different. But uh, just to give you a little insight as to me, I put some slides up, um, and I'm going to go through them real quick. So hit it, maestro. That's me. That was taken yesterday. Yeah, that's the proof I used to have here, just uh, so you know. Next. Oh, they cut, cut the faces up. That's me on the left there in my three-piece suit, my little sister, my family. You see the guy over there on the right with the shades on? That's my dad. He was the original OG. He was a godfather. And that's why I wear shades today, because my dad did. And that, this is the Italian family in the 60s in Southern California. Next one. Oh, yeah, there's the, there's the junior OG with my family. Uh, my wife on the right, daughter Joanna, and my daughter Shelly. And uh, we took that at Kaladi's. So that's a little, little family picture. Next. This is what I love doing, body surfing at the beach. I mean, if you, if you caught me dreaming, this is what I dream about. Body surfing, old cars, and eating in and out hamburgers. That's me right there. That sums me up right there. If you want to know Larry, that's Larry right there. So uh, somebody took a picture of me. I think it was Cheryl. I mean, I just got done riding a wave. I just felt victorious. All right, next. This is, a, this is the heart of my heart. You can see I got a picture of me and Cheryl and my Bible. Every morning I get my Bible out and I read it because I love getting in God's Word. Oh, that's my favorite movie character. And uh, Cheryl's embarrassed because on my phone, I have the Rocky theme song. We were in a coffee house last week, and it went off, and everybody uh, gave me a standing ovation. I like, yes, I am Rocky. I, lo- I, love, I love the Rocky movies, except for two, three, four. The rest of them are pretty good. One and five, six are pretty good. But this, this, I'm sorry, it may seem shallow to some people. This is me, though. Yeah, there you go, right there. This is one of my dream cars. That's a low rider. I grew up in the low rider culture in Southern California, and I lived on the boulevard where all the hot rods all jacked up at the back end, the 57 Chevys, racing down the street. This is a, this kind of culture I grew up in. I, I dream about this stuff. Next. There's my grandsons. Uh, uh, I used to call them Skip and Flip. Anybody that knows the song about that, you know where I, where I got that. But that's Sam and Levi. They're the love of my life. One of my dreams is to see to stick around old enough so I can see both of them with a mustache. <laughs> Next. Okay, that's good. That's a little something about me right there. Um, but I was, you know, like I said, I was say, oh, yeah, I forgot. Um, my favorite all-time Christian song, To Hell with the Devil by Striper. Oh, let me say that again. My all-time favorite Christian song is, to Hell with the Devil by Striper. Yeah, let's just give a hand for that. Uh, that gives you my sentiments for the other side. Uh, favorite music, all-time favorite, Beatles. I mean, how can you not love the Beatles? And uh, old-school instrumental surf music. You got it like the Shantays with Pipeline. Um, you know, stuff like that. That's a little bit about me on, the, on that side, uh, just on the human side. But... Uh, the spiritual story for me, I mean, I have so many things, but I just picked a couple of highlights. Um, like I said, I've been saved for 64 years. I mean, I've only known Christianity. 
I don't have a story like I was addicted to drugs. I was, you know, I don't have one of those things, but I grew up in an alcoholic family. Um, I was in a church that was very legalistic that eventually became a Christian cult. Got out of that. Um, but all the time in, in here, this, this Jesus thing, this Jesus thing was my breath. It was like, it was like, I didn't even know it, but I was always drawn to the things of Jesus and the word of God. Even I remember one time as a little kid, I wanted to, I wanted to handwrite the whole New Testament because I wanted to make sure I was understanding what it was saying. That's just what God had done. I mean, when I got, guys, when I got saved, it was a bullet shot out of the gun. That's just the way it's always been for me. I know it's not that way for everybody, but for me, that's the way it is. Um, and I'll tell you how I came to, to the Lord um, very dramatically later on in my life. But um, I'm always interested in the things of God. So, uh, like I said, I grew up in an alcoholic family. Um, my family was a mess. It looked like the typical white family in suburban Southern California, um, Lakewood, California. But we were a mess. It was like... I could not wait to get out of there. And um, so when you grow up in an alcoholic family, there's so many dynamics. By the way, I, never, I have never drunk. I've, I did a couple of, I don't know what you call it now, doobies, whatever you call it now. I smoked a couple of joints in my life. I hallucinated, and in the hallucination, Jesus told me, don't ever do that again or we're finished. So I just never did it. I'm serious. I had this giant dream and in the dream, this big caption, Jesus said, Jesus, stop here. And he said, if you do that with me, if you do that anymore, you're done with me. And I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And I just never did it. I didn't drink. I didn't uh, do dope. I was, my friends were always asking me to drop mescaline or do some acid with them. I knew I was an emotional mess and I'd never come back. I knew I'd never come back. I'd be dead. Um, so um, by the time I got to the, uh, to the summer of 1969, I, w- I had pretty much left Christianity. I just had had it. I just, there were so many things. The conservative Baptist church I went to, now I'm grateful for all the things I got there. But back then, the social aspect of being in a young person in that, I just didn't like. And I was just, I was, I was always, I know you can't imagine that now, but I was always the short, chubby, fat kid that always got made fun of. And I was always the one that people picked on. I don't know, this was like a sign on my back. It said, Hey, kick me or pick on me or make fun of me, you know. And I was always that kid. So church was no different for me. It was just that way. So I decided it was the 60s, 1967, summer of love, going to college here in Southern California. 1969, uh, I get my draft notice. I'm going to get drafted. Um, I was able to not, uh, I, I, I regret now that I wasn't able to serve in the military. I really wish I could have. But I had a bad knee from a wrestler. I was a wrestler, and I hurt my knee. So me and my friends, just like all the other hippies, I was a hippie, yes. I had flowers in my hair. I had the long hair. I was going for the Jimi Hendrix look. I had the bell bottoms, you know, the whole thing. I, w- I was full-blown into it. Um, we were going to Can- hitchhike to Canada, just like all the other hippies. Ah, we're leaving America. We're going to Canada. I'm like, I'm glad I didn't. I'm glad I didn't make it because I really like living in America. Anyway, I'm hitchhiking. My friends bail out on me. I'm the only one. I got a giant. Uh, I've got a giant. Um, what are they, a duffel bag. 
We didn't have big backpacks in. And funny thing is, is I took my Bible that I, I got when I graduated eighth grade in Sunday school and put it at the bottom of my... I said, I might need this. Well, I'm going to try to smoke as much dope as I can and sleep as many girls as I can. So, um, so I'm hitchhiking, um, and I get to this place... Uh, in Quines Creek, Oregon, right off the 5 Freeway. There's only one way to get off. It was a hippie commune. I mean, when I say hippie commune, I mean it was a hippie commune. But all the people there that were living there, that actually lived there, they were Christians. But they were into some weird stuff. But what happened was, uh, these three guys, these two guys I was with, they pull up there. They said, we're going to crash here tonight. I said, okay, great. We walk in the door. Literally, this is what happened to me. We walk in the door. Soon as I crossed over the threshold, I was almost knocked over. Really. I mean, I didn't make it up. I was not high because I don't smoke dope. And literally, I just was, I was knocked over. I'm like, what? What in the world? About 20 guys, long hairs, hippies, um, loggers, all kinds of guys shooting pool. They say, hey, you guys want to go downstairs? Uh, we're going to tell you a little bit. We have some things we want to share with you. So back then, the terminology in the Jesus people movement was, have you received the Holy Spirit? It was like that. And that's how they did it. They go, have you received the Holy Spirit? And I'm like, what does that even mean? I never heard of the Holy Spirit. I heard of Jesus. God, Holy Spirit. So they started talking with these other guys, and basically what they mean is, have you experienced the baptism of the Spirit by speaking in tongues? So they did that with the two guys. Nothing was happening. Nothing happened with them. It was like, it was like the place was liquid God. God was the air in there. And I don't know if anybody else experienced it, but I was. It was dramatic for me. So they finally asked me if I wanted to say, heck yes, and go speak up, go up there. So the only hands, I mean, you know, it's old drill, uh, speak, say whatever comes to you, and blah, blah, blah. So they start praying. Next thing I know, I wake up. I'm like, what happened to me? I was, I, only I know how to say it was, I was feel, like I was filled with hel- heavenly helium. Helium. I was filled. I mean, I'm like, what just happened to me? I spoke in tongues, uh, three French words. I got an interpretation of what they were later. I go down to uh, sleep in what they call the high house, and I don't know if there was a connotation to that, but it was on a higher ground. And I'm laying there and uh, trying to sleep, and I kept getting woken up by a voice, and I kept hearing, it was audible. It was audible for me. Larry, it's me. It's Jesus. And I'd wake up and say, who said that? I'm not kidding. This is how it happened. I said, who said that? I'm trying to sleep here. Go back to sleep. Larry, it's me. It's Jesus. What in the... It happened all night. I hardly got any sleep. All for three days, I was like not... I was just like higher than a kite. And it was a Holy Spirit. Never experienced anything like that. All of a sudden, as quick as it came, it left. I was furious. I took my uh, fake John Lennon glasses off and threw them in the trash. <laughs> I'm serious. I got a Baptist hymnal there. I went out and stood on a rock, and uh, which was bad because I couldn't see very well. Now I don't have any glasses to wear. You know, it's like I opened this hymn book, found out something I I, um, I recognized, 
I started singing to the top of my lungs. I never done anything like this in my life. I never did anything to the top of my lungs. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden, like somebody took a 35, a 55 gallon drum of Jesus. I got drenched. I mean, it was, I'm like, what is going on? And my hands went out. Nobody taught me how to pray this way. It just was an immediate response. Tears in my eyes. I said, Christ, whoever you are, wherever you want me to go, I'm yours. And I'm just telling you, my life's never been the same. I've never looked back. That was 1969, July. Immediately wanted to share the gospel with all my friends, and I became hyper-obnoxious. I was just, they called me Machine Gun Kelly because I was just mowing people down. My parents, my brothers, relatives, friends. Everybody heard the gospel from me. And uh, it was not pretty. I'm telling you, it was not pretty. Meanwhile, I was like, had some addictions, uh, not drugs, but I had a pornography addiction. I felt horrible about myself. And that was before you could, there's computers. You had to actually go somewhere to get the stuff. And uh, long battle, um, but... Over the next few years, God really established me. He really set me free from those things. He established me in himself. He established me in the word. I got involved with a group that was rather cultic eventually because that was a lot of what was going on then. But the God's word really got in me. And if I had to say anything about my spiritual experience, and I'm going to share one more thing and then I'm, I'm done, is, is, is how important God's word is to me. I mean, that one slide that I had there, I mean, that is the most important thing every day, whether I feel like it or not. I'm up and I'm getting in the word somehow, some way, reading, studying, you know, whatever. I, I wore a Bible out in 13 years. It literally I had to give it up, get a new one because I just wore it out. I love the word of God. And it's not it's not legalism to me at all. Just like eating it in and out is not legalistic to me. Reading my Bible is like going to In-N-Out every day. I love In-N-Out. What can I say? And I feel gypped that In-N-Out's going to Colorado Springs. That's lame. That's the sister city. Get it up here to the mothership. Come on. So over the years, God developed that. Met my wife. um, Had my kids. Um, Eventually, I went to uh, seminary. Got my counseling degree. And then uh, the day, almost a day uh, of my, before my last class started, the Lord said, I want you to be in full-time youth ministry. Well, I've already been working with young people. I've been a youth pastor for 46 years. Never wanted to be, I never wanted Mike's job. I don't want Dave's job. I voted for Dave for the job. <laughs> never wanted to be the head honcho. All I ever cared about was getting next to kids, getting involved in their life, sharing Christ with them, and seeing what kind of radical salvation that God could bring to kids and to see that Jesus is real. He's no fairy tale. He's not a religion. He's not a thing you go to church for. He's real. Jesus Christ is real. And I, it, it, it just fire, I don't know if you guys can tell, but I get fired up about this. <laughs> about talking to kids about Christ. And now, okay, so I'm 69. Kids are anybody 40 and under. Right? My wife doesn't like it. Cheryl doesn't like it when I call, if I would call uh, Dave a kid. Uh, are you over 40? All right, forget about you. Uh, Shara. Uh, <laughs> my wife gets mad because I call Shara, one of my kids, or Tra- Tracy Johnson, who we met her for a long time, one of my kids, or Gilbert, one of my kids. 
See, they're not kids, but they are to me because I'm 69. If you're under 40, you're one of my kids. What can I say? And that's kids, K-E-E-D-Z, kids, you know. Anyway, that was a joke that you have no context for, so it doesn't matter. Uh, so I'm going to tell you how scum of the earth got started. <laughs> Mike calls me the godfather of scum. I had a ministry called Tuesday Night at Your Mom's. And there's a, there's a reason why we had the name. I had, a, I had a skateboard, indoor skateboard park in a small warehouse. We had bands playing every Tuesday night. We'd have 200 kids show up. The worst, the ones I loved the most. The worst of the worst. I had drug dealers, pimps, uh, people, who were kids that were in high school pimp and pimping themselves. We had, uh, we had every kind of kid in the subculture world you name it, we had it. Every Tuesday night, eventually we were having two, 200 kids. We'd have bands play, serve free coffee, 10-cent soda pops. They loved all that kind of stuff. And then afterwards, we pushed all the furniture aside, and we skateboarded till 11 o'clock. And uh, we call it Tuesday night at your, at your mom's. I did that for about five years, and then that came to an end. And it ended at the Columbine shooting. And I had an involvement in the Columbine shooting because one of the shooters was one of my kids. And I got a chance to share the gospel with a prophetic message to him. And at the end of my message, I didn't know, obviously I didn't know what he was going to do, but he was sitting about where Dave is from where, a little bit closer. And I, at the end of my message, I said, there's somebody here tonight getting ready to kill somebody. And God knows it. If you give your life to Christ, you put your life back together. You could have heard a pin drop, but uh, the Lord said, say it again. Cause that's what he told me to say. I said it again. Then I, if you could have seen it, like 80 subculture kids, mohawks, cigarettes in your ear, tattoos everywhere. Back then it was jinkos and wife beaters. You know, that's, everybody's come forward, knelt down with me while I prayed. Two days later, the uh, Columbine shooting happened, and um, I started getting the messages. Guess who was at your place? A, that's a longer good story, but. So it was, that was, the Lord was telling me, it was to, uh, my job was done. I, I was done. Kind of spent a year doing not much, just waiting on the Lord. Next thing I know, I hear this thing called Scum of the Earth getting started. And it was basically, it got this right, quite a bit of what Scum was was a lot of kids from Tuesday Night at Your Mom's, right? I want to make sure that's right. They came over. Tuesday uh, Scum of the Earth uh, started, really, kids from my youth ministry. I'm the grandpa here. Mike likes to call it the godfather. I'll take that one. <laughs> huh? Hey, hey. So, Scum has always had a soft spot in my heart. So, I always wanted to come to Scum. I'm almost done, honest. Um, I, I wanted to come to Scum all those years, but Lord wouldn't let me. I just, Mike would say, man, how come you're not coming down here with us? We need you. And I'm like, I'm trying to, but the Lord won't let me. So, in 2012, March of 2012, the Lord tells me to get with Mike. Tell him what I've been doing for the last several years. And uh, then tell him that he needs to start a worship and prayer ministry and that you'll help him. I'm like, I'll help him. You know what that's like, joining with somebody and trying to help them do something in their own church and you're not the main guy? I said, wow. I find out later when I told Mike that, he said, well, the Lord been telling me the same thing, so welcome. <laughs> so it's like, okay. So for the first <laughs> for the first three and a half years here, Cheryl and I, which really wasn't our church per se, we were just here to help get that worship and prayer thing started, and some amazing things happened. 
So the way Mike said it was it was like scum had been like a submarine in the bottom of the ocean for 18 months. And through the worship and prayer ministry, the submarine came to the surface. Then eventually so many good things came out of it. So um, that's, that's it. Uh, just to have two quick things. Um, is that scripture? This has been my this has been my life scripture since I was first uh, um, in the seventies. But whatever gain I had, I counted it loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For the, His sake, I count I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. That comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. I think uh, I would close with this. This captures my heart. My life revolves around this. And if I had anything to say at the end of my life, I wanted you guys to know I'm on the other end of the stick than most of you guys. Most of you guys are in your 20s, 30s, maybe 40s. I'm 69. I'll be 70 in 10 months. I just wanted you guys to know that there's nothing worth living for than Jesus Christ. That's what I tell all young people. This is my thing. I've literally, last 12 years, Cheryl and I have lost everything. We lost our house. We lost everything. It was all part of the plan that God had for us. That was our journey, not yours. But if I could, if I could say what my life shows on this end of the stick, is that it's possible to follow Jesus all the way to the end until you die or become an old person or till the rapture happens. It's worth it to lose everything, to give everything away that you may be found in Him and get to know Him, and that Christ may be the center of everything you do. I really love this church because it came out of what I was doing, and Mike and I were friends at the time. You guys took Cheryl and I in when we were really, really hurting. I came to help with the ministry, but you guys really took us in and have really ministered to us. So, best of my ability, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it.